0: Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome to the Common Bridge. Rich's guest today is Matt Taibbi, and Matt's an author, a journalist, and he's also a podcaster. He reports on finance, media, politics, sports, and a lot of other things. He's a contributing editor for Rolling Stone magazine, and he's authored several books. And he also publishes a newsletter on Substack. Now, this podcast was also recorded for simultaneous broadcast on Richard Helpy's new Common Bridge on YouTube. So check that out, hit the subscribe button, and you can get more of Rich's interviews there. So let's join Rich and Matt Taibbi in conversation.
1: We're sitting today with Matt Taibbi. Matt, thank you for joining us on the Common Bridge. Of course, the Common Bridge is the fiercely nonpartisan podcast and now YouTube channel where we discuss policy, we discuss how to solve the problems of the day, how to seize the opportunities of the moment with many distinguished guests. And we have with us today author and journalist. So welcome to the Common Bridge.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You're writing for Rolling Stone and others and your books, which you have the best book titles. Insane Clown (laughs) President is a great title and hate ink. And I found those to be very attractive. And uh, you wrote an article earlier this month called We Need a New Media System. Tell our audience of The Common Bridge about that, please.
2: Yeah, it's, um, this is based on the ideas that are in the book You Reference Hate Inc., which is really a story about how the commercial model of um, the news business, which I grew up in, my father was also a reporter, how that's changed in the last uh, 40 years. You know, we used to back in the days of... Um, know the three networks uh the commercial strategy was to go for the whole audience um and now with the advent of cable and the internet and the atomization of the news landscape the the dominant strategy commercially is to pick a demographic and just try to dominate it uh by feeding it news that we know that they will like and that will reinforce their views and that's sort of the fox strategy you know we know we're going to give this audience what they what they're going to respond to but that that's also what goes on on the other side with msnbc uh cnn and the problem with that is that it, it it heavily incentivizes news companies to kind of demonize each other's demographics, and there's no uh, incentive to really kind of play things down the middle or you know balance is a word that's become tainted in journalism, but uh, but I think it is it, it's it's an important word. There's no incentive to that because because your audiences aren't going to respond and they're not going to stay. So um, you know, what I was proposing is basically. You know, maybe someday we'll we'll create um, a new framework that will um, attempt to try to figure out how to uh, how to have a news business that doesn't depend on stirring up audiences against each other. Is the idea? I
1: think you have a term of art. Is it called outrage center or writing <laughs> to the outrage center? Is that a one of your terms or is that a term of art?
2: Yeah, I, I I do use that. I'm not sure whether that's mine or whether I plucked it from somewhere, but I I definitely talk about that. I mean that's that's the idea. And I've worked in media for almost thirty years now, and that's what we're that's mostly what we're doing. You know, we, we all know who our audiences are and we know what they're gonna respond to and you know, in the if you work in Fox News, you know that if you do a story about some uh, absurd, over-the-top, woke episode on a campus somewhere, that your audience is going to go nuts about it. Same with us, you know, when I worked for Rolling Stone and I did a story about how loopy Michelle Bachman was, or whatever it was, you know, our our audiences eat that stuff up, and there's not a whole lot of uh, incentive to try to tone down that instinct in your audiences.
1: I actually watched when you authored objective article, but it wasn't following the talking points of the kind of left leaning part. And boy, did the knives come out! Um, <laughs> you know, you were like the guy, and and then it was well, wait a minute, why is he writing this now? Like traitor. It maybe I mean, maybe I'm overstating the case.
2: No, no, no. This this is a thing that. It, that became very common um, after Trump arrived on the scene. It's it's interesting. In my career, actually, one of the things that actually boosted my career early was was the perception that I was willing to criticize in all directions. Um, you know, I did a lot of story, a lot of reporting after the financial crisis that was heavily critical of Democrats for their various policy failures leading up to that crisis, and at the time the journalistic consensus was well that's good that's that's fairness that means that we can trust this kind of reporting but once trump came on the scene that that fell out of favor The idea of, you know, just sort of calling things as you see them suddenly that became a crime that we call false equivalency or false balance or whatever it is. And it became an accepted tenet of the profession that it's the journalist's responsibility to help push the audience in the correct electoral direction, which I think is not what we're supposed to be doing. But that is now basically the hegemonic belief within the business.
1: Yeah. And I don't look, I don't think this started necessarily with Trump. And I recall the first press conference that President Obama had in the White House, and the New York Times reporter asked him how he was finding the job so far. And one of the questions was, what part of it was he finding most charming? I mean, you talk about hard-hitting journalism. And then throughout that, they redid one-seventh of the economy in the healthcare bill. I, by the way, am a healthcare guy. I actually read that bill start to finish. And I've read the Medicare for All bill and I read the Clinton Care bill when that was in. That was the, the business I was in. So I was waiting for anybody, PBS, I don't care, somebody to sit down and say, okay, here's the healthcare financing methods we have today and here's what's gonna change and what it's gonna mean to you. Still waiting to get that report. And people want to know what it is. Why is it that we have this crazy patchwork? And I've had six people on my podcast, if you count me as a knowledgeable healthcare person, coming from all different perspectives, all arrive on the same fundamental framework about what needs to be done. And it's frankly not that hard, and it's frankly overdue. The people that we actually hire to do this won't do it, That we elect, and, and the people that are supposed to report on it don't. So I was intrigued with where this can go from here. And so when I saw the title about a new media system, my mind went to why can't people like you be part of the, it's now digital, but what used to be print, but the written word with some video, with maybe some hyper-local reporting, which there's quite a lot of that going on that's pretty good, coupled with a news summary of the day, and what's stopping that from being formed?
2: It's a great question because, and, and look, there are people talking about it. There are high profile people in journalism who are discussing the possibility of creating kind of a new corporate enterprise that would, seek to do this but the problem is it's not really in anybody's interests it's not you know to do it that way you'd have to have a kind of a dissenting ceo with a lot of money to spare to pour into this new venture who's willing to kind of buck conventional wisdom and we we have had people do that but right now the the the, the way things are is perfectly acceptable to most of the people who hold power in this country, they, they like, you know, if you go back and listen to George Carlin talk about this and, <laughs> oh yeah, in the, in the, in the oh, I yeah. guess, the late 2000s, maybe 2008. And he was talking about, you know, the last thing, uh, the people who actually own this country want is a population that's capable of critical thinking, you know, and, and the way we have things now is a hyper divided system in which everybody is basically on one team or another and they're so busy talking past each other and lobbing insults and threats at each other that they don't really think about stop to think about what's going on and you and you bring up healthcare it's a massive issue in the lives of everybody and having covered presidential campaigns i know from listening to both republicans and democrats that people are deeply profoundly furious about Healthcare. I mean, you, you, you take your kid to a, an emergency room and you, and you might walk out with a $50,000 bill just for you right. know, staying overnight for a case of the croup or something like that. And if you don't have, you know, if you're not covered, it can be like a crippling incident in your life. Uh, worse as, worse is
1: you think you're covered. Right. And, yes, you think, exactly. and, and you think that that ER is in network. And then you find out, oh, wait a minute, that's a different physician group. And yeah, the ER is covered, but the the two
2: doctors that look at your child aren't covered. It's an insane system. There are so many things. I, mean, I have friends who are doctors, so this is a it's a personal like bugbear for me. But just to take an example, you 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 could get in a car accident, be unconscious, and be helicoptered somewhere without your consent. You never you never agreed to it. You'll wake up with a hundred fifty thousand dollar bill for a helicopter ride, and that's not covered, right? Well, here's uh,
1: here's the here's the secret about that. On the admission forms, always insert, you're going to say you're liable for charges, just insert for covered in-network charges.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then also when you get that bill, don't pay it because right. it'll wend its way through. The, the computer systems behind this are just absolutely horrible. And the, the insurance hasn't even adjudicated the claim before it falls out and, and it's slipping over to patient responsibility. But this kind of knowledge is in the country. It's in a lot of places, but it's not being brought any place. And if you think about a person that's engaged in a job or a profession and they come home and they want to be a responsible citizen, what are their choices at night? ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, they're probably missing someone there. PBS, yeah. PBS, yeah. All kind of from the same playbook they don't have another alternative. And just in the short time that we've been doing this podcast, we hear from both the newsmakers saying, hey, I appreciate that I get uh, time to talk about the issue like policing. Let's go to this sheriff and in 30 seconds, tell us what we need to do about policing in the United States. It's an impossible job. And then from the audience, they're saying, I'm not getting any information. And I've kind of of the mind when I hear that word about a new media. Again, I go to all of the good reporting like you're doing and the hyper local report and some of the better podcasts. It's just really bringing that together in a gateway. And I think a corporate structure with corporate control would not work. I think there's a not-for-profit element to this. I think there's some user pay to this. And I think there's some basically free content in this. You know, when you turn on CNN, you know what you're going to get. You turn on Fox, you know what you're going
2: to get. Not to interrupt, but that tells you right there that it's not news <laughs> because because the news by, by its nature is surprising and confusing.
1: And I'm trying to promote this. You can hold two thoughts in your head. We can all say, OK, Donald Trump was a terrible choice for president and he didn't know the job. He didn't want to learn the job. And he's got massive personal problems, which happens to be my point of view. And at the same time, say that the FBI misbehaved, which they did. And I pointed this out to a very knowledgeable legal person. I said, look, James Comey, Sally Yates, Rod Rosenstein, all asked under oath in a Senate hearing, if you knew then what you know today about the contents of the FISA warrant application, would you have approved it? All three answered no. That didn't make any of the news. And in an email exchange with this very highly knowledgeable person, The response back was, oh, where'd you get that, Fox News? I said, no, C-SPAN live during the day. But the first reaction was, I don't like that fact. You must have got it from a bad place. That really speaks to how corrupt the media world has become.
2: Yeah, and we've conditioned our audiences to, to react negatively to news that disappoints their narrative expectations, right? So, you know, the example that you cite, you know, on another piece of news that's in that same vein, it came out in declassified testimony that Andrew McCabe, the deputy F- FBI director, that way back in August of 2016, they had moved on from George Papadopoulos as a target to Carter Page because he said the evidence, quote, didn't particularly indicate that Papadopoulos was actually communicating with any Russians, which tells you that the entire predicate for that FBI investigation was flawed from the beginning. When that came out in the Horowitz report, which again is not yep. it's not a right wing thing. It was a, an inspector general report, the headlines in all of the newspapers that had hyped this story were instead focused on the idea that the, the start of the investigation was legal, that it had been done without bias. Mm-hmm. But it didn't it didn't tell us the important information that there was a problem. And that's what happens when, when you behave that way, audiences see it and they stop trusting. And that's why we've had results like, you know, there was a poll this week showing that only 46% of the country trusts the media. It's stuff like that, that contributes to the problem. Like you just, sometimes you have to just suck it up and tell people the news that even if you don't like it, you know?
1: Right. And and so this was uh, the, so I was watching CNN and part of my diligence on news scanning and they're complaining, well, why doesn't anybody believe us? It's like, I mean, which fake story were you flogging do we want to use as the example? What story didn't you actually try to get facts out on that we can use? What about your owner saying his job is to take down a certain president? It's like, that's why people don't trust you. you know, how did they get to the arrest? We sent, I don't know, 27 guys to arrest a 70-year-old. Including a helicopter and an armored vehicle at six in the morning. I mean, come
2: on. It's Yeah, uh, I mean, look, people like Jeff Zucker came from the entertainment wing of the business and they understand the news as an entertainment product, which is frankly correct given the way that the business is structured. I mean, it's morally and ethically abhorrent, but from their point of view, they're trying to create something that they know is going to drive a lot of audience. And so, yes, they're 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 creating a narrative that creates villains and heroes, and Donald Trump wears the black hat, and you know, the the forces on the CIA and the FBI they wear the white hats. But this is a format that's been repeated back and forth over and over again but it's gotten so much worse in the Trump era and the the problem is that again audiences see this they want people in the news to have a sense of detachment about what they're reporting like we're not supposed to really care about what the outcomes of political events are we're supposed to be hyper focused on what's already a very difficult job of getting just getting things correct and the, the primary preoccupation of reporters, and I know this from growing up because I have so many people who are in the bu- friends who are in the business, used to be this panic of getting it wrong. Like every time you did a story, you had mm-hmm. trouble going to sleep at night because you were afraid you got something in the story wrong. And the previous generation of journalists all have that. Now they don't because they the, we all know that our audiences are going to forgive us. If we miss a little bit, but as long as our hearts are in the right place, right, they're, they're okay right. with that, which is a major sign of a problem.
1: And, and see, I think that the partisan attacks from what should be a detached, objective press actually was their undoing. Think if, just put the camera on Donald Trump. So I, I watched him, and it's like, remember when he did the thing about person, man, woman, camera, TV, I
2: don't remember that now. Okay,
1: so I happened to watch that interview live. He said, well, give me this cognitive test and nothing like you'd have to have serious brain damage not to (laughs) uh, pass this. But he went on and on. He goes, oh, the doctors had never seen anything like this before. They couldn't believe it. And he went on for minutes. And I, I was watching this going, does he really believe that? Or does he think we're that dumb? Either one is a problem, and he shouldn't be the president of the United States. Right. But instead, what's on the news is, what did Adam Schiff cook up today? Or Anonymous in the White House, who was you know a senior-level advisor who turned out to be a kid probably didn't even shave every day. Um, <laughs> it's like... What are we buying into here? CNN is saying that our old demented guy is better than Fox's old crazy
2: guy. That's the debate we're having. I think you're right. Those narratives that were cooked up by the shifts of the world actually became one of the only things that sustained Trump's ability to be politically viable across four years. It was his best card to play when he went yep. to spe- I mean, I mean, cam- I covered both his campaigns, this one less than the last one because of the pandemic, but... When he went to crowds, that was his go-to line, was going against the media, talking about the news stories that they had drummed up against him, and because he was correct in a lot of those cases, it really resonated with a lot of people because he had solved his own accessibility problem with ordinary uh, working-class Americans, Trump being you know, ostensibly a billionaire, by turning the CNNs of the world, the anchors of those programs into the class enemy. And he succeeded in doing it because they overreached, you know, and- they played right into this, into his narrative. Exactly. And if they hadn't done that, the, the predominant thinking in our business is, oh, we had to do this because we had to stop him. But, you know, journalists aren't superheroes. Our, our job is just to tell people what's going on and then somebody else has to do the stopping. You know, like that's, that's the, and we just don't see it that way that way uh, now. And that's that's a problem. Let's kind
1: of zero in a little bit on solutions. So my general thesis is that we have three bad guys in the group. It's the Republican Party, it's the Democratic Party, and it's the news reporting industry. Now, I refuse to call them journalists because they're not. They're not fulfilling the role of journalists and a free press. I believe that trying to Undo a Democrats or Republicans with a third party is probably futile. They've really cemented themselves in, but they do have great survival instincts, and I think that they will respond to enough pressure. And so, similarly, on news reporting, why can you keep producing garbage? Well, the answer is very simple: people keep consuming it. So, how do we get on the other side of that? Because it doesn't take a lot to look. And I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly, but do you know the first fellow, Andy Ngo?
2: Oh, Eddie, no. Yeah. Uh
1: Yeah. And so I've seen a lot of his videos and things and what he's reporting from Portland and from Seattle and so forth. And I'm like, okay, that looks bad. What date was that? What angle was that? And is there any corroboration? Because if what he's reporting is true, it's being really underreported and nobody's picking it up. And I only use him as an example is that we need to get to a standard that this group or this ecosystem of reporting is trying to do an honest, fair job.
2: So he's an interesting case. There there was an episode yesterday that really brought out the weirdness around that. He he tweeted out an interesting piece of information, which was that Twitter had just shut down a series of accounts uh, ostensibly connected to Antifa. That was an interesting piece of news because a lot of people on the Progressive left have been cheering a lot of the censorship and speech suppression because they think it's only going to impact their political opponents. A few reporters, people like Glenn Greenwald, myself, we kind of retweeted that information and the immediate reaction was to pile on because, oh, you retweeted and you know who's who's a fascist or whatever it is, right? I actually don't follow Andy all that well. I know of him, but this is a pretty common phenomenon now in media. It's, well, we're not going to cover an issue, but if you actually consume any coverage by the person who does pay attention to the issue, we're going to denounce you for doing that. Yes. So, uh, and it's similar to the phenomenon of Glenn Greenwald doesn't get invited on CNN, MSNBC, any of those channels. He's been kind of like a lot of uh, reporters, uh, kind of blackballed from those kinds of invitations. But then he goes on Fox News and they get on his case for going on Fox. Right. Pick one or the other. Like, either examine the issues yourself or demonize the person, right? But they, they don't do either. So, it's a long way of saying, like, okay the issues that Andy knows is and looking at which are like antifa protests or whatever the only real coverage of that has been basically to dismiss the idea that it exists i don't think that's true i mean i think it's i think it's totally fine to do reports that say well this is a real phenomenon i don't know how big or dangerous it is but let's look at it you know and they're not doing that and that's and, and that just lends more and more credence to probably his audience.
1: To that specific topic, we do know there are things going on. I want to know, okay, who are these people? Who's equipping you? How did you know to show up there at that time? Why did you employ the tactics? What do you hope to achieve? Basic questions, right? And then people can either reject that particular movement or they can join it. But this notion that it doesn't exist is nonsense because we can see it. And even Ted Wheeler, mayor of Portland, after months of denying it, said, yeah, there's Antifa and anarchists in our city and they're a problem. Well, slow on the uptake. okay, but he got
2: there. Yeah. And and there were there were demonstrations on Inauguration Day in Portland. You know, it wasn't like wide scale violence, but there was there were a couple of businesses that had their windows smashed and that got some headlines you can't say it's not there's nothing there 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 clearly was significant amount of unrest this summer and again from a news perspective you don't have to have a take on it you just have to go and document it yeah and th- and this was this was a problem that that i think was pervasive during the during the summer protest about police brutality and again, I wrote two books about police brutality. It's like a, an important issue to me. But the, the well, idea... What are, what, are,
1: what are the titles of those books? And, to, and just talk to... Um, our audience would love to hear about them.
2: Yeah, I wrote a book called I Can't Breathe about the killing of Eric Garner. And I wrote a book called The Divide, which is sort of about the difference between how... White collar criminals and street criminals are prosecuted, and so I did a lot of a lot of work on street policing, stop and frisk, community policing techniques, uh, and how they've changed over the years. All kinds of horrific stuff that we could get into if you wanted, but the the point is. I get a lot of what the the protesters were being upset about o- over the summer. I was in tune with all of that stuff. But you can't say that there was no disruption whatsoever. I mean, I there were co- communities where there were elderly people who couldn't get their medication because the pharma, local pharmacy had been destroyed. There were small businesses that were disrupted. Um, you can't just whitewash that out and say it didn't happen. You have to document it. There was kind of a movement within a lot of the newsrooms to say, well, let's not do that story because it'll give credence to the idea that that this movement is not righteous or whatever it is. It's not our job to make that determination. That's what worried me.
1: Look, 500 people go and loot a Target store. That's the story. What happened to the Target store? And the nader for me was in Chicago, during one of the mostly peaceful protests, as they've been captioned, they smashed the windows in the Ronald McDonald House. Just one function, take care of the families of kids that are really, really ill and right. uh, while they're getting care. And I couldn't get anybody on the left to denounce that at all. And uh, as I'm, I'm watching my friends on the right, my friends on the left, divide over I said something to the effect that I thought that the president deserved impeachment on the second impeachment. My humble opinion, I think he violated his oath of office. Mm -hmm. Um, He did it over a period of months. And talk show hosts probably shouldn't do that. A candidate definitely shouldn't. And a president never, period. And and that's going to get adjudicated. I'm I'm happy to see it getting adjudicated. But at the same time, I said, look, if, if you were one of the people flogging these fake stories, just to your point earlier, about that gave Trump cover... I just said kindly STFU and smear me the pearl clutching if you were condoning fiery arson over the summer. It, arson's arson, not good arson or bad arson. And if you think about like the reporting that went around the mayors of Olympia, Seattle and Portland, they were peaceful demonstrations, summers of love, until they came into their neighborhoods in their front yards. Then they were rioters or criminals.
2: Right. There are like sort of match sets of stories with completely different approaches. So yes. in, in, in September, Trump's attorney general, William Barr, sort of suggested that he might start prosecuting the people behind the Chaz zone or whatever they call it in Seattle for sedition. And that word sedition triggered this sort of avalanche of one friend of mine calls a uh among a lot of the pundits class because oh my god, what a what a uh, an incredibly powerful and nonspecific governmental prosecutorial tool they're going to unsheath to go after these these protesters you know like that's a that's a tool that should be handled with care it's a word that you know you, you shouldn't use except in the most extreme of circumstances in the capital right i actually understand the use of it with respect to certain people involved in that in that fiasco but within a couple of days it was being expanded to cover not just Trump, but anybody who ever voted for Trump, Right. and it, it, an exactly opposite reaction. If you're supposed to be careful with the word the first time around, we should be careful with it the second time around. Again, it's a different approach to the job. It's more about the people we're covering as opposed to the principles that we're covering.
1: The attack on the voters of the other candidate, thats was the big thing that struck me in 2016 when Hillary Clinton went after, and this is a prepared line, by the way, of Trump's voters. And, you know, you stand in the public square as a candidate, you're going to get attacked fairly and unfairly that guess what that comes with the territory, buck up, you got to deal with this. But when the attacks started going against the actual citizenry, I think that's where we broke through. And I think it launched this like competitive virtue signaling that you see on all kinds of media that, hey, I think better than you, therefore I'm better than you because I compare at certain lines and... That's, and the, the media started flogging that. If you look at the arc of things like the Duke lacrosse case, the UVA rapist, where Obama was born, the I don't know, obviously lying Christine Blasey Ford, the whoppers that Trump would tell and have echoed throughout the right-wing media, does this all link together? And how do we get out of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I do think it's linked because the, the regulatory framework, the thing that's designed to prevent the spread of falsehoods is accountability to your audience. But when you have a divided audience, your own audience doesn't care if you screw up in the other direction. So when Trump talks about, you know, how they stole the election or there were, uh, you know, three million undocumented people who, who voted for Hillary Clinton or whatever it was, his audiences probably don't care that it's not true. So those things get to circulate over and over again. And it's an echo chamber that just continues echoing because that's the nature of these things. But the same phenomenon goes on the other side. If you tell a story about Trump being like a literal agent for uh, Vladimir Putin or that the it's the beginning of the end of his presidency and then we can expect indictments, which is what we were told on the middle of march 2018 and then that doesn't happen the reason we can do that is because our audiences don't particularly care they're forgiving and that's that's a feature now of media on both on both sides
1: there are people that still hung on to the there's still people that accuse trump of being pro-russian and i remember when that story first broke i said hmm Here's a guy in his 70s, in the public eye most of his adult life, and he decided, I think I'm going to run for president, and let's see, oh, Russians are the way to go. Right. Like I, I said, look, I'm willing to hear the facts. And during the whole Mueller investigation, when the uh, left, and many of my friends on the left were frothing at the mouth and saying, oh, we're going to get this guy, and you know the little crawlers are going to the bottom of the the left-wing media breaking, saying, you know. yeah, breaking news, uh, The Trump, the walls are closing in, the end is near. And I just said, well, I said, with the resources, investigative resources, the money, the time, unprecedented access, including breach of client attorney privilege that Robert Mueller has, I said, if there's something there, they're going to find it. And I'm content to wait till the report to come out. And the report comes out, it's like, uh, never mind, but um, we might have some process crimes that wouldn't have existed had we not done that. Right, But because the accusation was made, that stink is going to be out
2: there forever. Oh, yeah. It was very conspicuous that the entire Russiagate story was absent from all of the autopsies of the 2020 election. It was like it never happened. Right. right. I mean, it's, you know, again, I, I lived in Russia for 11 years and the Sovietness of our approach to memory now is just striking. Right. Like this was the biggest issue in the Trump presidency for three years. Uh, he was dogged by these Accusations constantly, and you know, did they have an effect on him? Did they have an effect on the country? What was the impact of that story on the national psyche? Uh, Nothing. It's it's a non-issue. It's 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 like it's been erased. And this is a new tendency in American media. I mean, we've seen a recent example, just. A couple of weeks ago, we were told to expect armed demonstrations in all 50 capitals. And FBI leaked reports to all the major news agencies. They said there was a memo telling us to expect a massive uprising. And it doesn't materialize. Okay, fine. Like, it's, it's fine to say, well, maybe they were deterred by the show of force, whatever it is. But they didn't even do that. They didn't even address it. It's psychologically damaging to audiences to constantly hype up threats and then just pretend they didn't happen or that the experience of being threatened never happened. Uh, and that's what we're doing to people. That, to
1: me, is one of the biggest crimes that we have in the media today. It's all about alarmism and threatening so that it stays there. In your earlier career, were you ever kind of directed to, to do that? Like, hey, we've got to write something provocative because we need eyeballs or we need clicks or whatever. How, how were you getting measured as a reporter?
2: It doesn't really work like that. If you ever read Noam Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent? I've read as a teenager, it's really interesting because he's never worked in the media, but he gets a lot of it right. Like Reporters kind of are trained to internalize the values of their business. And so you just kind of learn by the way that your editors react to certain things, that they're going to like some stories and they're not going to like other things. And so by the time you know you're old enough to be doing front page stories you've already been trained internally to recognize that this is a story and that's not a story and i try i really really tried hard to break out of that mold uh, in my career in fact one of the things that i i really worked hard to do was to, was to try to popularize things that most people considered boring like exp- explaining what a subprime mortgage fraud case looked like yes. or things like yes. that, right? So you, you take something that people don't really want to deal with and you have to work extra hard to make it interesting. Most of the time, though, we have the opposite incentive, and especially nowadays when you can quantify so exactly what's going on with your audiences. Um, when you Whether you're working on a platform like Substack like I do now, or whether you work at you know the New York Times, you you know how many people are reading, you know where they're coming from, what sites they're they're visiting through, how how they learn about your story, and so you're heavily incentivized to make things more sensational or to appeal to certain audiences, and it's um, it's a difficult thing to navigate.
1: My brand promise is that every listener will find something to not like in every one of my episodes. <laughs> So it's okay. And so I tell people, if you're going to come here expecting to get affirmation, don't. You know where to go for that. But I'm going to be equally strong and and, and as factual as I I can be on everyone. And I actually wrote a a little thing called holding two thoughts in your head, that people think things are all one way and they're not. And, And I think this gets us to the polarization of politics where we have people clamoring for, again Medicare for all. And they don't understand what's... That bill basically says the secretary of HHS controls every penny of healthcare spent with no guardrails, period. That's what's in the bill. So it's not Medicare. It's just a massive control of healthcare resources. That's what's in the bill. I've read it. When we look at things like firearms, we have 320 million firearms in private hands. And of course, the framers put the Second Amendment there because they were afraid at some point in time people couldn't go hunting with guns. Um, They just got back from a hunting trip. Um, But you're not going to take 300 million firearms out of the country. All right. But at the same time, there's people who shouldn't have them. And so I suggested a graduated licensing plan for firearms, just like we don't let a first-time pilot jump in the seat of a 747. We just don't do it. Yet in some states, an 18-year-old can go into a gun shop, buy an automatic or semi-automatic rifle, and buy a thousand rounds of ammunition and walk out. Now, you can't tell me the person behind the counter doesn't have some hint that that's a problem. Right. You look at student debt, okay, which frankly is loan sharking because your balance goes up just like loan sharks do. And who benefits? And you look around and you say, all right, there's a university with billions of dollars in an endowment and they're soliciting students to come here to improve your future at the same time knowing they're laying so much debt on them that they are Im- Periling their future. I mean, it's a moral outrage. And the beneficiaries are universities that are piling up these massive billions and billions of dollars in endowment and in, in kids. We need to get after that. But where's the story about that?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's difficult because, and, I, and I've written a bunch of student loan stories, and the, the problem with that, uh, as with a lot of other narratives, is that the you know, we, we tend to sort of commoditize issues and simplify them for audiences. So you take the gun issue, there's pro-gun stories, there's anti-gun stories, right? There's, there's not a whole lot of, well, let's look holistically at the whole thing and try to figure out a way that we can address some of these issues step-by-step, right? Like that kind of approach is just absent from media with student loans you're either deemed pro-student or anti-student, right? So even though it's very clear that the hyper-availability of government debt is actually a significant driver of the increase in tuition costs, which is part of the reason that this whole pro- this crisis has snowballed so, so much, you know, it's like a vicious cycle. Like, everybody has to go to college, everybody can get debt, The the universities know it, they keep jacking up prices and, you know, now it's outstripping inflation, whatever, you know, people will interpret any kind of idea of, well, maybe we should do something about making government loans maybe less easily available, then that's you know, being, being against uh, social mobility or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So there's a tendency to try to drive the nuance out of coverage with Trump. It was another example. You talked about Hillary's deplorables comment. I, I mean, I covered Trump and I interviewed a lot of his supporters and there were definitely, definitely without question, people at his events who freaked me out, who were unquestionably like racist and, and said, and said things that like were shocking to me. I hadn't, I hadn't heard in America in a while. And then I to, you know, two rows down, I would interview some 60 year old grandmother who's just like, Oh yeah, I loved his reality show.
0: You know, mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, they were completely out to lunch in like in a different way. Like, you know, I, I would ask the question, what is liking him in a reality show have to do with, you know, his fitness for the presidency? And, you know, there's just nothing there. Those are two completely different phenomena. But even that is too complicated for the press. Like the, you talk about two thoughts. There were there were hundreds of weird reasons why people voted for Trump, but they reduced it all down to one or two in the process. I think they missed a lot that was important. So, so yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying, and well, I think a lot of Trump's vote was anti-Hillary vote. Oh, of course, of and course. Yeah. Just
1: I vote in a swing state, Michigan, and we were bombarded with two negative Hillary attack ads by Hillary Clinton every single commercial break. You got one or the other. And then about every, I don't know, 10 or 15 times would be Trump ad talking about restarting factories and the like. I don't know who was advising Hillary Clinton to not do a ground game. And I don't know who was advising her to bring up the Billy Bush tape, because I can tell you there were Democrat women, staunch Democrats, I won't vote for because she slut-shamed a 23-year-old and uh, defended a serial sexual abuser. And I was asked on things, well, what, how would I advise a Democratic Party? I said, I would tell Hillary to pick out one thing that she's done that's benefited other people, and I would just hammer that home. Give people a place to go. Never came up with anything that she had done for other people. And Trump rode that. So he never had to have people face the full reality of a guy whose executive talents is all about by the seat of his pants. He roars a lot, but he doesn't follow through. And so, you know, then they come up, well, he colluded with Russia. And I'm like, I don't think this guy's organized enough to collude with anybody. He'd have to like stay on a plan
2: for a period of
1: time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think more he,
2: than eight seconds. At a time. Yeah, yeah. I
1: don't think, I don't think he has the attention span to collude with anybody. And I think he'd be dumb enough if he thought it would move his approval rating up or, get him attention he'd talk about it on national tv or something right you know? look
2: at a great look at what a great deal i just yeah right off. exactly right, right. Yeah. hey hey
1: i pulled it off on you so <laughs> we, we moved to, to 2020 and the democrats are coming downstream and it looks like bernie sanders is probably going to get the nomination and they go well we can't have that so we get able to drop off and so well we're going to settle on joe okay so Clyburn steps in and Joe gets the nomination because he's like, okay, Joe, don't be Bernie. And then Joe goes in the general and he's like, what's our plan? You're not Trump. So my advice to Joe Biden is don't be Bernie, don't be Trump, and you'll be fine. You right, know? Matt, why can't we, or let me, let, me try, let me try this a different way. If we wanted to engineer a better media what would the building blocks
2: of that be? I mean, I think we're headed in that direction anyway. The, the the one thing that I worry about that's a major wild card in all this is this new sort of Silicon Valley mm-hmm. consolidation and effort at censorship because it's heavily directed at emphasizing what they call authority, like Google's whole plan for how it ranks and deranks the content is based on this standard of what they call authority. In order for a new system to emerge, it's going to have to be experimental first. There's going to have to be a sort of a vibrant alternative media culture. That kind of culture could easily be artificially suppressed uh, in this new environment. And that worries me. But absent that, I think really it's just going to take somebody recognizing that there's a huge commercial opportunity out there because there's a lot. There's a massive audience of people who are disaffected and they're, and they're both on the left and the right. They don't believe even the basics of what they're being told on whether it's Fox or CNN. It doesn't matter. Um, so just create a channel that I, I would say start with a just a basic newscast that checks its facts, worries about getting stuff right, and makes some kind of an effort to pick its stories based on issues that actually matter to ordinary people. The emphasis in the last, especially in the last four or five years, has been to focus heavily on issues that are of primary concern to people within the beltway. Like the Russia issue, nobody cared about it. Like when they actually did surveys about it, they said, what's your most important issue? Like it was less than 1% of people said the Russia thing. Uh, but people cared a lot about it inside Washington, you know, so that uh, if they base things around healthcare, student debt, childcare, educational quality, nutrition, opiate addiction, all mm-hmm. these things that are, people are really worried about. They're really freaked out about. If They did that. I think they would do really well, uh, but they're not doing that yet.
1: Well, to your, to your point, if you control Amazon, Google, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, And if you really want to extend it, Verizon, AT&T, and Sprint, you could literally control the world. I had a guest on my podcast, Professor Daniel Crane from the University of Michigan Law School, and he's also still a practicing attorney in antitrust. And he's written some papers about how Hitler was able to rise to power because of the monopolies or duopolies in uh, pre-war Germany. You know, he he had to control two chemical companies, two aircraft companies and he did and he compromised them and he was able to direct them into this war effort. And I am hearing a muting of voices on the left based on the muzzling of Trump and the shutdown of parlor and such. And I've never been on parlor. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is, other than a, a libertarian Twitter, I guess, is what it is. But giving that much power to those few people is a bad thing. And the irony of this is that most of those companies, they were spawned based on an antitrust ruling that broke up AT&T mm-hmm. and, and, and a consent decree that limited IBM. And again, this is where good reporting would come in. Google is way past due to be broken up into multiple companies. They are in, in huge need of being broken
2: up. You, you add the the media element to that, and it's it's a very frightening picture. There's a shocking lack of concern about this issue among people whose livelihood involves the transmission of information let me i grew up in the in the 80s when people freaked out like it was in a national emergency when tipper gore wanted to put labels on rock albums mm-hmm. uh, and now it's like you know the ceos of twitter and google and they're just zapping accounts left and right and nobody cares, you know, and it's it should be a huge issue in the press because this is it's clearly something that's going to be directed or already is being directed at us. It's very strange that there's that there's no uproar about this or no no fear about how it's going to be employed. The, the incident with the New York Post expose on Hunter Biden, which I didn't think was terribly important of a story, but to suppress it was a huge deal, and reporters should have been freaked out about it, and they weren't at all, which is very worrying. Yeah, great example, and and the suppression of it made
1: it more like, why don't they want this out? I thought the tale about how the laptop got to the FBI was far-fetched. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you took three of them in there, although there was no denial from anybody about that whether the emails were authentic or not. So right. somebody needs to get in there and go, Okay, the emails are good, but that's not how they got out into the public sphere at all. Or the emails are, are bogus and the whole story is terrible.
2: It appears they weren't bogus. And you're right. I, I think the, the story about how that they, they came out was unsatisfactory for sure. So sort a of unilateral idea that yes, we should just suppress that story. It's like why <laughs> I mean it's yeah. it's so crazy that, that that people were for that in, in our business. I it was shocking to me. Well, the first
1: uh, test case, I think, of making a non-person, and you lived in, was it Soviet Russia at the
2: time? Or was I, uh, it... I, I went to school for a year in the Soviet Union, and then after that, it was Russia.
1: So making a person a non-person, and Alex Jones, who is an idiot I, and an inflammatory guy, but a simultaneously taking him off of every major platform. And I looked at that and I said, well, not really disappointed to see him go, but boy, does that speak to the power and, and kind of getting it dialed in. So frankly, you or, or me, any of us could be knocked off, could be made a non-person. And then, well, what's the next step? Well, you know what? JP Morgan and Bank of America, Comerica Bank, they don't want you to be a car car. And think about that, that there's a lot of power being consolidated in a few places and we don't have that traditional role of journalism. And so when I read your writing about the narrative first, and then let's go get a story and drop it into the narrative versus let's go and find out where the facts take us and write it no matter whose ox are being gored, I really feel strongly we need to get back to that. I do think there's an appetite for that in the country. I do think there's an appetite for balance and plain speaking. The Police chief in the city of Detroit, great guy. He talked about pro clutching. There was a series of home invasions in the southwest side of Detroit where the home invaders were shot by the homeowners. And his basic attitude was look, we can't be every place all the time. So we're pretty happy about this. And it
2: was like, <laughs> wait,
1: you can't say that. It's like, well, actually, we can. Uh, so, and you know, he's a, a good guy, a democratic guy in a very democratic city, but he's trying to keep people alive and keep the bad guys out of your house. But he was breaking from doctrine that guns are bad, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they are bad misused, but they are also a tool that we have to get to that kind of discussion, man. I hope that you will continue to be bold. I hope you'll continue to be successful Uh, write more books, write more articles. I'd be delighted to share more of your work here. And perhaps we can think this through about becoming part of or helping support a, a turn in journalism back to that very important role that the framers had in mind.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it, and thanks, thanks for having me on. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you think that no, we should have? I no, think, I think we hit, hit most of the most of the key points, so that's cool.
1: Well, let me make this an official sign-off. This is Rich Helpy with our special guest, Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone and author and many other publications. Look him up on Substack. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. He is a factual guy, and he's not trying to win your approval. He's just trying to do a great job as a journalist. This is Rich Helpy signing off the Common
0: Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post production provided by Stunt 3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.